A man of many hats, Kurt Anderson is a radio host, an entrepreneur, a television producer, and a novelist. But before becoming a wizard of all things, he started out as a journalist. After graduating from Harvard, Anderson co-founded Spy, a satirical magazine which mocked American celebrities and media icons in the late 1980s and 1990s, including now President Trump. From there, Kurt worked as an editor-in-chief of New York Magazine, then moved to the New York Times, and later created his own radio show. These days, he describes himself as a book writer, but Anderson says he's always had more than one plate spinning at a time. In this episode of Influencers, I speak with Kurt Anderson about his newest book, his infamous nickname for President Donald Trump, and how America's middle class is at war with the ultra-rich. Welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guest, Kurt Anderson, who is a journalist, radio host, and author of a number of books, including The New Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America. Kurt, great to see you. Good to see you, Andy. So um, I want to ask you, first of all, about that introduction. And this is an unusual question, but is that how you would describe yourself? I mean, what do you do for a living, Kurt? Well, I do fewer things lately. I, I stopped doing the radio show a, f- a few months ago. I, I would say I write books. I mean, I'm also working on another podcast. I'm also working on a TV show. I, I tend to have more than one plate spinning at a time, but pretty much I'm a book writer. Right. Um, so let's talk about Evil Geniuses a little bit. The book describes um, the rise of wealth inequality and political inf- influence of wealthy interests in the United States since the 60s and 70s. Why did you decide to write about this? Well, it it sort of found me, as writers say, uh, but it did. I, I wrote a, uh, I, I'd been writing novels for 20 years, and then I wrote a nonfiction book uh, uh, that came out three years ago called Fantasyland. It was another history of America and how, in my view, uh, we screwed ourselves up, and 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 that was about the the what I called the the the, the sort of uh, part of the American character that has always been there, which is the the kind of weakness for believing the untrue if it's exciting enough to believe, and that it finally got out of hand the last few decades, and especially the last four years. Um, and so I realized after that, after I finished that book, that that was really only half the story. That was a purely cultural story, really. And 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 that there was this other set of things that had happened in the last 50 years. Uh, so I realized there was a kind of sequel to write that was more, yes, Evil Genius is also about cultural changes and how I uh, tie that into the rest of of, of what I talk about. But mostly the book is about economics, as you say, and politics and technology. And and so uh, I, really, there was one. There were several times when I was talking about evil geniuses, or rather, when I was talking about Fantasyland, and 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 people in audiences would say, "Well, yeah, okay, Americans uh, don't believe in climate change, but isn't that just because the Koch brothers made them not believe in climate change by spending all this money in, on politics?" And I would say, "Yes, sure, that's part of it, but." There is this predisposition among Americans, unlike people in most developed countries, to believe things that aren't true. 
And but then I realized that it is the combination in that instance. It is the combination of credulity of Americans, along with this very deliberate strategic work over decades to make them, in the particular case of climate change, not believe that it's a real thing or a thing to worry about. So then I, I realized I'd been around. I was a you know young adult in the 1980s, as even the 70s, I was a young adult. And, and so I was there when what I what this book is about happened, but I, I realized I wasn't paying very close attention, even though I was also a journalist. Uh, I, w I wasn't really paying attention, partly because I was doing well. As this cabal, if you will, of evil geniuses was twisting and changing and transforming our whole economic system through the 70s and 80s and 90s, I was doing fine. And therefore, I, I, my, my, my kind of, I suppose, my acuity at seeing all that was happening was blunted by the fact that it was working out pretty well for me. Right, exactly. And and so when you talk about that, um, there is this role that is played by people on the left in the Democratic Party, um, that it's not just the right. There's a, I don't know if being complicit is too strong a word, but- I'll, ta I'll take it. Is it that? Then, then explain yourself. I mean, so the left is is a part of it then. Well, certainly the the liberal the yes left of center people were definitely a part of it. I mean, the book is is primarily about the economic right, the the Milton Milton Friedmanites, the Kochs, the other right wing billionaires, the the whole right wing counter establishment, economic right wingers, and what they built in the seventies and eighties and nineties um, to really create a paradigm shift about how all of us and our system thought about fairness and equality and all those things economically. But we knew Democrats, as as they were called starting in the 70s, the Gary Hart's, the um, Bob Carey's, the Bill Bradley's, the Paul Songus's, all these guys who I were my heroes, frankly, um, said, oh, we're all free marketers now. We're all, we're, we're the 60s are over, we're now, uh, committed to compromise and figuring out a, you know, a, a good system that's all about the free market and let's meet halfway. Well, and and they did, and we and again, I wasn't a policymaker. We did, and then uh, just kept moving to the right. And there's there really ceased to be in this country a a politically influential uh, economic left. I mean, really, the the the. There were still back in that day. There were still liberal Republicans. Then the sort of Democrats on economics took over that role of being the liberal Republicans, and there were no FDRs left. There was not that economic vision politically that had any kind of consequence or power or or much influence in the United States. That reminds me of two things quickly. One, I remember a British person explaining to another British person said, "Well." You've got the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, which is like the Tory Party here, and then you've got the Democratic Party, and that's like the Tory Party here. <laughs> that one, and then another one. I remember just a couple of years ago, Kurt. I'm up in Maine, and someone said to me for the first time, and I was shocked when they said this to me, but it makes so much sense now that the Bushes and the Clintons, they're all the same. Well, exactly. You know, and I used to, I remember back in the 90s, I remember the 2000 election when people would say to me, oh, you know, the Democrats, the Republicans, they're not a, not a lick of difference between them. 
And, and of course, I would say, but look, the Supreme Court, uh, race, uh, women's rights, reproductive rights, all and on. And those indeed are significant differences between Democrats and Republicans then and now. But what what they were seeing, and I and I wasn't I wasn't because again the system was not screwing me over, was was that in economics they, they had there had ceased to be much of a difference. It was really it was really a, a you know people talked in hyperbolic terms that I always looked at as too hyperbolic about you know there there's there's a capitalist party there's a there's a leftish half called the Democrats and a rightish half called the Republicans. Now, and, and so that that's true, even though, of course, the the left and and certainly my position and in this book is is like Elizabeth Warren's. I'm I'm all for the free market system, just one that works and is sustainable for the long term, and and is fair as it was when I was young. So, what do you say or what do you think about um, the young person who supported Elizabeth Warren or Bernie? And then you have to tell them, not you, but the Democrats or Biden yeah. have to say, vote for me. And they're like, no. Well, not many of them are saying no, I think. I hope okay. not. But certainly in the, the in, during the primary campaign, that was a legit thing to say. And, I, and Joe Biden was not my first, second, or maybe even third choice candidate. But um, uh, I, what, what I say to them, I, I say, partly as a result of writing Evil Geniuses and, and, and doing this forensic history of how this change and hijacking happened, is it is a long game. It's not just one candidate and, and your favorite candidate or I'm leaving. It isn't this election. It's a long, long game that they these guys <laughs> played so brilliantly. And and so, yes, you, 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 you know, you know, you yes, you want we want we want radical change. I'll stipulate that young person, who votes who who is a Bernie bro. But it it comes, I'm afraid, you know, one step at a time. And the first step is would be great, wouldn't it? I think if we had a big landslide electing this moderate Democrat president. And by the way, a moderate Democrat who, because his party has moved significantly left just in the last decade on economics, finally has become a kind of party of the left on economics, that he will do what his party wants because he is a kind of generic Democrat. And therefore, I would say to them, and I have said to them, including my children, you know, you get this guy and you get this administration elected, you hope for the best, you put pressure on him to do what you want to do in terms of childcare and healthcare and higher taxes on the rich and big business and all the rest. And, you know, this is your shot. I mean, you, you know, um, you know, you 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 couldn't even get Bernie Sanders nominated. So give up that. Give up your your sorrow and anger about that, and and face what's in front of you, which is a you know, creating a, getting a democratic democratic uh, president, and that's your first step. It's but it's only a first step. You wrote in your book uh, about the rise of inequality. We were hoodwinked. We hoodwinked ourselves. Are you referring to the to the media? There no, I'm I'm sure, but I'm I'm really referring to all to 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 all of us in a certain way. Certainly, the media and the professional class of 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 liberals and even Demo professional Democrats who I think overinterpreted the 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 uh, what the election and the huge the landslide election of of Ronald Reagan meant. Um, I I think, but also just regular Americans who were convinced that 
you know, they were voting to make America this beautiful, idyllic, small town, Bedford Falls kind of place, like it is in Maine, like it is here in Connecticut. Uh, again, and 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 really didn't read the fine print or didn't imagine what was really going on, which is that they, the normal people, the 80, 75% of Americans who aren't anywhere near the top, were going to get screwed, and they did. So that's 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 the hoodwinking. The hoodwinking by this 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 kind of turning the nostalgia that had become so rampant in the 1970s and then into the 80s into a political means of selling. Reaganism and and America is it's a beautiful place and it's morning in America, without really going into the details, the hundreds of details of what that meant about uh, how unfair and insecure and unequal all of the important pieces of the American economic system were about to become. What about someone like Warren Buffett or and there are other wealthy people out there who've been saying for years that our taxes, their taxes should be raised. Taxes being a hot button issue this week. We'll get back to that. Yeah. Uh, Warren Buffett, whom I've known for a long time because I grew up in Omaha, where he still lives, uh, has been amazing and extraordinary. And I don't share some of my the the loathing of every each and every billionaire that some of my my political friends and allies share. He has been extraordinary. And, and, and not only has he said that, that, oh, I, my, I, should, I should pay as much taxes as a percentage as my secretary, as he has said many times. He also said, as I talk about in the book, in 2005 and 2006, he said a couple of times in big interviews that got some attention at the time that, yes, there's been a class war. You, you, you conservatives are talking about how the left such as it was, was is, is fighting a class war. There's been a class war, and it's my side. It's the rich people, and we're winning, and we shouldn't be. And he said that again and again. And I remember at the time thinking, wow, good for Warren. Yeah, right. But that's just hyper, hyperbole, isn't it? And really, at that moment is when I began thinking and reading and studying more. And it ended up in this book, Evil Geniuses, but realizing that it wasn't just a poetic notion. There really was, had been since the 1970s, a kind of class war on the part of the rich to transform the economy. And and every you know graph you look at of, of the history of how economic growth continued going, productivity kept rising, and yet all boats stopped rising together all at once around 1980, and it wasn't by accident. So I'm glad you mentioned the Omaha connection to Warren Buffett, because I was going to ask you about that. So tell us about when you met him or first met him. Are you still in touch with him? I mean, everyone in Omaha must know each other or something. Well, right? yeah, because it's only only a half a million people live in the city. And, <laughs> but um, uh, my parents were friendly with him and uh, 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 unfortunately not friendly enough to invest money with him. But yeah. um, they were friendly. And and uh, I really didn't. I, I Got to know him a little bit when I was older. I, I, for instance, I wrote him a letter when I and my friend Graydon Carter were starting Spy Magazine in 1986, asking if he wanted to invest in Spy Magazine, uh, and he wrote me back and very nicely declined and and saying no, I, I I don't invest in startups of that kind and so forth. Anyway, then we we run into each other over the years, and he's always really nice to me and always says nice things about my mom, my late mother, and stuff. And and so uh, he's you know he's great. And again, in terms of a decent rich guy who, who he, he, as you say, he's been he's been terrific. But he also 
he, in his old school investment strategy of, of investing in companies for the long haul and letting them run themselves and all that stuff, really this pre-1980 way of investing and regarding uh, the system, Again, that that to me is far is is much closer to optimal than the cut and run private equity uh, driven system and day trading investors without any commitment to anything that we than that we've developed since. I had no idea that Warren Buffett might have been an investor in Spy Magazine. I'm still processing that. Curve. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so Spy Magazine, you know, for for those people who don't know it, it was an amazing publication that spawned all kinds of careers and started all kinds of trends in journalism. And I was a huge fan. One, maybe the most enduring element was your nickname of the current president of the United States. And so you've been, and we'll get to it, and you've been covering Donald Trump for decades now because of that. And so talk to us about the, the nickname that you came yeah. up with for the president, how you got it and all that. Well, Donald Trump, so Spy Magazine was this satirical monthly magazine, started this small New York-focused thing in 1986, and very quickly was, in its way, very successful very quickly and became a national magazine. We had hundreds of thousands of readers and subscribers. Um, so, as I say, it was a satirical magazine. So we had our targets and our recurring subjects. Donald Trump was in our first issue. The first issue, the cover story of the first issue was Jerks, the 10 Most Annoying New Yorkers. Donald Trump being one of those ten, uh, and 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 by the way, in the little write-up on him in that first issue, he was talking about how he could be president. He could solve the missile crisis with the Soviet Union in an hour. He would need didn't need to know anything more than he knows now. So, you know, uh, past his preface. Um, so we caught we in gen we for our recurrent subjects, whether it was Donald Trump or 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 Henry Kissinger or whomever people we talked about regularly, we created uh, sort of epithets that we, we repeatedly attached to them once we settled on one, only and called them that again and again and again. It was a, Great and I had both worked at Time Magazine. We're both working at Time Magazine at the time. And back in the day before our day, Time had had such epithets that they always, back in the 40s and 50s that they referred to people as. So we thought, oh, that's funny. We'll do this kind of corny old fashioned thing. For instance, uh, Henry Kissinger, we called uh, socialite war criminal Henry Kissinger every time we referred to him. And 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 Donald Trump, we tried various nicknames and none of them stuck. And, uh, you know, uh, Queensborn casino operator Donald Trump, very kind. Then we, in 1988, we came up with short-fingered Bulgarian Donald Trump and we knew we had a winner and, and kept at it and kept calling him that. And that was based simply on the fact that Graydon, as right before we were starting Spy, had, had gone to interview Trump for a profile he was writing and, and came back to our little, not even an office at the time, barely an office, and said, you know what, this guy, yeah, he's a big guy, he's six feet, almost as tall as I am, he said, but he's got the tiniest little fingers I've ever seen. So and then when, when it, and of course he's a Bulgarian, so when the time came to, 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 to dream up a, a nickname, short-fingered Bulgarian worked, and it stuck. And, 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 and you say I, I've studied Trump or covered him for years. I did certainly a spy, but then from 1993 to 2015, not so much. But then he came back, and then suddenly in a debate in 2015 with Marco Rubio, there they were, two candidates for president, arguing about whether his fingers were long or short, and 
and what it meant about his manhood and the rest. And I just felt like I was having an acid flashback at the time. Are you surprised that he's president? That's uh, so hard to say, Andy, at this point, four, three, almost four years into it. Yes, it is. It, it remains to me a kind of a, a amazing, uh, like stuck in a nightmare, stuck in an acid trip uh, surprise. I, I mean, I can't say I wake up every day surprised, but something like some cousin of surprise. Yes. Um, and, and even though this last book of mine that I mentioned, Fantasyland, of which he became a kind of poster boy, I wrote and finished before he was even nominated. If he hadn't been nominated, if he hadn't run for president, I, I, let alone be elected, I probably wouldn't have mentioned him in the book. Maybe I would have, maybe, but probably not. So I'm, so I saw what was happening to the country that be, made it so ripe to elect such a preposterous, monstrous person. But uh, that doesn't mean I wasn't still surprised when he was elected, given that, you know, back in 1988, when we thought he was a joke and, 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 and took national polls asking people if they wanted Donald Trump to run for president, because even back then he was flirting with that notion, we thought it was just, it was funny. It was a joke. It was, he, he was a cartoon character and he was fun to make fun of. But do you understand, Kurt, that some people watching this might be deeply offended by what you're saying, maybe call you a long-fingered liberal, or I don't know what they, the they might. And I, th both, the, all those, both, all of those adjectives are correct. Okay, <laughs> that alone. Um, but, but what is it? I mean, thirty percent, forty percent of America loves this man. Yeah. Love him. Yeah. Well, and 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 thirty or forty percent, I would say thirty percent love him. And another ten or fifteen percent will vote for him. Right. Um, is would be my estimate. Then there are my evil geniuses who don't love him by and large, who who understand that this is the guy they got, um, who who their who the hoi polloi in their right wing coalition love, and therefore they're stuck with him. And as long as he gives them a $2 trillion tax cut, as he did in his one leg legislative accomplishment in 2017, and as long as he is a, is a, is a ferocious anti-regulation guy and really serves them in every way, except they don't like tariffs so much, but oh, we'll live with that, he's, they're good by him. So, so but, but what does it mean that, you know, 30% really do love him? It's, you know, 30% uh, of America... Um, believes all kinds of things, has all, are, are strange and kooky and uh, misguided in all kinds of ways. So, yeah, they, they managed to elect a president, and that's strange and phenomenal and a milestone, but uh, uh, what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, it, that, that's how it sort of ties into the book, right? I mean, that it speaks to people believing things. I mean, and maybe people believe... Donald Trump, literally every single thing he says, I, I think that the president himself has said, hey, some of this is hyperbole, right? I don't know that he says that anymore. He said it, well, rather, Tony Schwartz, his first ghostwriter, said it when he wrote uh, Donald Trump's first memoir back in 1987. I don't, th he, he, he says, oh, I was joking, or he doesn't say, as some people have said about him when he was running, oh, don't take me literally, but just take me seriously. He doesn't quite know the difference or care about the difference. And if 
he, you know, he always gives himself the option of saying, oh, no, 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 I was just joking, if he sometimes goes too far. But um, he, it's, it is a, sh it's, it's just a show, sure, but he's also President of the United States uh, hurting and ruining many human beings' lives in various ways. So, um, uh, you know, you, you, you have to take him literally, potentially literally, always, and for sure, seriously, always. So this notion that Americans historically have believed in things you don't understand, to quote Stevie Wonder's song, I guess, right? <laughs> uh, but but it's there's it's more it's a more dangerous world now, Kurt, because of social media, arguably. And if you look at elements like QAnon, I mean that's different from 30 years ago, right? It, it it is. I mean, again, I, in fact, I talk about that, that the, the the kind of America's devolution into believing too many conspiracy theories to explain any bad thing that people think is bad started around you know the late sixties and 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 slowly but surely got worse and worse, especially in the nineties and especially in the nineties and after because, as you say, of not just social media back then but the internet. Um, once we had an internet. And and uh, uh, all kinds of preposterous conspiracy theories and cons preposterous ideas and quote unquote facts of all kinds looked legit. Look, I saw it on the internet. It looks just like the New York Times. It, it looks real. It must be real. Um, we were in trouble because that was a new condition. Uh, you know, there have always been crackpots. There's always been conspiracy theories. And by the way, as I always stipulate when I talk about conspiracy theories, I understand some conspiracies really exist. However, most conspiracies conspiracy theories are not true and many of them are insane like QAnon but but once we had the internet this 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 what had become this default uh, 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 fantasy instinct to explain everything in terms of conspiracies really got out of control and 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 was took over more and more of the brain space especially on the right not just the right because you know for things like uh, the anti-vaccine movement at the beginning was more left than right. The 9-11 truthers at the beginning were more left than right. But it it became more of a, of a of a thing on the right. And once you had this ability to conscript believers, and then suddenly believers felt like, look, I'm not the only person who believes this. There are thousands, tens of thousands, millions of us. It was a cascade out of control. And yeah, eventually you're going to get to QAnon, where there are God knows how many believers and now Republican candidates for the House of Representatives who are QAnon believers, this utterly preposterous, uh, constantly evolving, kind of collectively authored theory of everything that, again, in, in many ways, it's not so different than the thing that existed when you and I were children, which is the John Birch Society, but they at least had a focus. It was Soviet Union, China, communism, anti-communism, you know, Dwight Eisenhower was a stooge of the communists and so forth. Now, that was ridiculous and they were extreme, but not even but 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 the the conservatives at the time, like William F. Buckley and Barry Goldwater, stigmatized them, kept them over away from the party. These these were we couldn't have these people. That's no longer the case. And thanks to the internet, uh, you know, you don't have to go to some little storefront in 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 Bogalusa. To, to be a member of, of the conspiracy believers as the John Birchers did. You, 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 they're, they're everywhere and it's 
as accessible as your telephone. Hey, you know, you're on Twitter a lot, Kurt. I am. I am, Andy. So, right. And so um, I am too much. I, I really look forward to the day that I'm, I'm done with it. And yes. I don't know why I can't say that, like that the, the day is today. But that's part of the whole attraction. And that's a whole nother conversation. Have you given much thought in terms of how Twitter and Facebook, just to name two, could police this stuff, stop it? Or what do we need to do to Facebook and Twitter? Yeah, it's tough. Because it is a it is a new situation, but uh, um, and, and Twitter is making its efforts. You know, mm-hmm. Facebook is a different beast because it's so all encompassing and so really it's it's a monopoly. It, it is a monopoly, as is Google. So you have the the problems of monopoly, which is one set of problems. But then, in the case of Facebook, you have um, uh, a founder. And, and controller, CEO, who is, has made it clear he is unwilling to make any meaningful attempts, really, to, to figure out how this new, incredibly powerful platform will not be worse for society and humanity than better. And it seems pretty clear to me that it's, the, it's a net bad right now. And and I'm not saying it's easy. You don't want suddenly a you know government censor reading every post on Facebook or whatever, but it's a new thing. You know, it, as people have said, it's 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 like a magazine or Yahoo Finance or a television network news division uh, in terms of people get their news and information from it, but they forswear any responsibility for what is said or done on it. You know, so. Okay, that's a new situation, and I get that it's hard when you're that big and X billions of users and all that. But that doesn't mean we don't have to try to figure out how to do that. And there are technical means. There are all kinds of means, and obviously they have pursued some of them at Facebook. But there, his his slash there, Mark Zuckerberg's and their basic corporate instinct seems to be, no, we're not going to do that. We're really not going to do that. Um, let a million flowers bloom, even if 643,000 of them are toxic, <laughs> you know? Our opium poppies. Well, and by the way, if you see any, give us a call and we'll probably take those out. There you go. Oh, exactly. Maybe. Exactly. Maybe. Sure. Yeah. Right. Unless, unless that particular uh, opium plantation is paying us quite a bit of money to grow them. Right, right. Um, Flipping back to uh, Donald Trump for for a quick question, um, Kurt, or maybe a long one. Um, are you surprised that President Trump only paid seven hundred fifty dollars in taxes in two years in a row? Well, I'm surprised that he paid any. I'm surprised at the number, to tell you the truth. I mean, like, I I really want the conversation with the accountant or the lawyer or whomever in which they decided, yeah, seven hundred fifty. That's what? So am I surprised he paid no taxes? I mean, specifically, no, because again, and I, w- I was looking back just the last few couple of days because of this big Times uh, article and set of articles at the coverage, the, the investigative, financial investigative journalism that Spy did back 29 years ago about him. And it's the same story, right? I mean, it's 29 years earlier, so it's not obviously the same story, and there was no Apprentice, which was really the place he's really made money over the years, but the same 
money losing enterprises and using the tax systems craziness to 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 not have to pay taxes and all of it so no you know i mean uh i mean and, and at this point and you asked earlier does does it surprise you that donald trump is president yes and no but nothing about his finances uh really surprises me it would it would surprise me if he were paying it, it surprises me less that he paid 750 dollars a year for two years than than it would have if i'd read that he paid 30 million dollars a year for the last few years that would shock me so a final question kurt what are you up to next uh or now i am i am working on a podcast history of uh, Richard Nixon and the Vietnam War, this learned series that I'm into and interested in. I am working on a television project um, for Disney Plus and with Jeff Goldblum. I and and I'm trying to figure out what my next book is going to be. Sounds like a pretty full plate to me. It, it's 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 a good plate. It's a fine plate. It's it's uh, it's uh, uh, it, it was really good. It was personally pleasurable for me, for all despite all the tragedy and horror of this pandemic. To to have had this this book, Evil Geniuses, come out. I was I finished it literally like the day before the pandemic. I finished it in early February, so I had the last six months, seven months, just to, you know, edit it and promote it and come and get to talk to people like you about it. So it's 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 filled my time. It's filled my pandemic uh, pretty nicely. Good thing. All right, keep spinning those plates. Kurt Thanks. Anderson, author of the new book, Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andy. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you again soon. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Serwer.